It is really uh, practical for for the layperson, also for um, the for formal biblical counseling, for discipleship, uh, for knowing God's word. Um, and so, I just wanted to let you know about that because they are having that again this summer. Uh, June second and third is when that'll be happening at, at Southern Hills Bible Church in Custer, South Dakota. So, I just wanted to mention that. And so, as you know, and as you saw, our first two sessions this morning are going to be judgment and mercy in the Old Testament and judgment and mercy in the New Testament, our first two teaching um, sessions. Um, Is the God of the Old Testament the same God of the New Testament? Is the Old Testament God the God of judgment, where the New Testament God is a judge of mercy? Um, Those are a couple of things that um, Jeff is going to help us cover this morning as he teaches on judgment and mercy in the Old Testament. So Jeff Sheehy is an elder at Southern Hills Bible Church. In his Sunday school teaching over the last few years, he's focused on the Old Testament, working through the books of Samuel, Kings, Ezra, and Nehemiah. He lives in Rapid City, and he's taught English at Rapid, at Rapid City Central High School for 18 years. He and his wife, Kirsten, have four children. The oldest of those children has now become a Black Hill State Yellow Jacket, so he sees that, uh, Ridgie's willingness to host him as a reflection of God's mercy. That's awesome. Um, please help me in welcoming Jeff Sheehy to the stage. Oh, look at that. I can hear it. Okay, good. All right. You know, um, my daughter, who is a yellow jacket, couldn't come today, but my son was sure to wear his BHSU sweatshirt. And, you know, I kind of laugh about that. You know, if uh, we have any Shadron Staters here or former Shadron Staters here, you know, uh, you, you look at a sweatshirt like that and, uh, and does it, does it kind of rankle you a little bit somewhere? Um, which kind of cracks me up because, you know, uh, we could, I, could, I could make jokes about it. But, you know, if I came up here and I talked for a couple of minutes about awesome, how awesome a ball player Joel Scott is, for example, um, some of you would be like, can you, can you just stop? Um, we don't really want to hear about Joel anymore, but he is really awesome, right? And, um, and so, so I, kinda, I, thought, I find it amusing to think about that, even just the, uh, we think about those kinds of rivalries and fun. And uh, I remember having a conversation with a really good friend of mine years ago. We were at small group. And, uh, I, and I, oh, I have to tell you, I grew up in New England. Okay, I grew up in New England, about an hour and a half north of Boston. And so we were talking in small group about some things. And he was well, one of my closest friends in the world. And he, he deigned to, to pledge allegiance to the Yankees. And I thought it was the most ridiculous thing that I had ever heard. And uh, so we argued for a little while, and, um, and, and, and honestly, when we were done, I realized that inside, I was, I was actually worked up. I, I, my heart rate had increased, and I was actually agitated that he would like the Yankees, because I really, truly, truly dislike the Yankees. And uh, that was weird. I had to explore that, and I kind of wrote a little bit about that in, in, in an essay that I had published. But I think it's kind of funny to me to realize as March Madness is going on, and you all are making a huge sacrifice and being here instead of watching the games. Uh, you know, you, you watch a game, you pick a team, you get into it, and when the team that you've picked 
or because of randomly picking it on TV, or because you're attending a school and, and, and the other team is not your school, and you're rooting, there's a sense in which you really are rooting against the other team. And it's really agitating when the other team wins. And so if the Black Hill State Yellow Jackets were visiting down here in Chadron and you watched Joel Scott go off for 33 points and 20 rebounds, you wouldn't be happy about having seen an amazing performance. And you'd probably go home a little disgusted if you were a Chadron State student. And that's a normal human experience. And yet, I think there's something interesting in that. It's We can't fathom, even rooting for a basketball game, it's, we can't root for it without our own sort of anger and our own sin coloring the experience. I mean, we're just watching a basketball game, and yet we can, our heart rates can go up and we can get actual real-life agitation at that victory for the other team. It really does interfere with it. Now, I, I, I kind of mentioned that at the opening. I mean, I kind of thought about it after my son got dressed this morning. But, but I was thinking about that because when we read the Old Testament and we read about God's judgment, we can't even fathom the idea that God could do the things that he does in the Old Testament and visiting down judgment and not do them like we would do them. I can't even root and cheer for a basketball game, and I will be when Black Hill State plays in the, in the national quarterfinals on Tuesday, I'll be watching online, and I will be agitated at the other team. I will be. <laughs> I know it. I'll try not to be, but I will be. And if they do well, it's going to irritate me. But, but, I, so, but even, even enjoying a basketball game, my own sin and anger gets involved in the process. I can't even fathom how to root and cheer for a basketball game without that kind of being underlying. And yet, when we read the Old Testament, we read about some things that it's almost impossible for us not to, to understand how God could do these things and be without sin completely 100%, even as he does these things. And, and I want us to start out this morning with the, the realization that I, I'm convinced, and maybe it's partly because, because sin colors so much of our experience in the world, that when we read the Old Testament, I am convinced that an honest, sincere, faithful believer can read the Old Testament and come away thinking that God is an angry God. Like, like we're angry. And, and, and that you can come away confused reading the Old Testament because surely how, how could this come from, how could this come from this, this not angry, righteous God? I mean, it's so confusing, right? Just think about some things that we read in the Old Testament, right? I mean, just imagine yourself. I was 16 years old when I came to Christ. And, um, and, and so, so there I am, 17, you know, through whatever, 20 years old, reading the Bible a couple of times and befuddled by the Old Testament, as, as in Deuteronomy 20, God's word comes through Moses and he says to Moses and the Israelites, go into the land and destroy the Canaanites. That's, that's, that's not an abstract term. The Canaanites were people who were living in the land. And he said, go in and destroy them right? You keep reading it and you get to all these other violent acts, right? For example, in 1 Samuel 15, uh, we, we know that Saul, he didn't obey in killing all the Amalekites and he captures their, the Amalekite king Agag and Samuel didn't like it and chastises Saul for it. And then Samuel hacks Agag to pieces, to pieces. This is, this is Samuel, the priest of the Lord. 
And he's showing Saul what he should have done. And he hacks him to bits, right? We didn't do that in church on Sunday, right? It's, it's wild to think about. The Old Testament contains all the directions in Leviticus about the sacrificial system. Sometimes I feel like the, the, the biggest modern equivalent we have to the Old Testament priest is a butcher, right? The directions about having to hack everything to pieces and cut it all up and make it a blood offering. And then, of course, there's the strictness of God in the Old Testament. Where, where in 2 Samuel 6, David is excited and they're bringing the ark. They're bringing the ark back up to Jerusalem and, and, and they've got it on a cart and it goes to fall over and Uzzah touches it and bang, he's dead because they weren't following the law that the Lord had given for, with reverence, handling the ark. Aaron's sons offer unauthorized fire. Bang, they're dead, Right? And so you can read the Old Testament, you think, who is this God? And why is he so angry? I think that's honestly, like I said, an honest reading of the Old Testament. That's what it can result in. So, so what do we do with that then? We, what, do we, what should we do? Well, first, I think we have to admit that you can read the Old Testament and think that. But here's what I think we're going to do today then. We want to look closely at a bit of the Old Testament, and, and we want to see how we might be wrong. But I'm going to come to the Old Testament with a, a presupposition a presupposition, an idea in place. This is going to be our framework. And this idea, we're going to get it from the Bible, though. We're not making it up, but we're going to get it, and we're going to find it in 1 John, all right? 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, okay? So we want to look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is our presupposition as we head into the Old Testament. Now, the whole verse says this, right? In 1 John, John writes, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. That, okay? Here's his core thesis for everything he's going to say. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. That's my presupposition. So so if I've read the Bible, and I have gotten the sense that I have discovered darkness in the Lord, if I've read the Old Testament and I, and I see the kinds of things I mentioned and I feel like I found darkness in the Lord, then guess what? I must be wrong. That's what this presupposition says. That's what we're saying. If God is light and in him is no darkness at all, then when I read about Samuel hacking Agag to pieces, then, then somehow in that, God is not darkened by, that's not darkness. So what's going on? What's going on? That's what I need to find out. That's what I need to find out. My, my assumption now is going to be, if I think that God is dark, then I must be misreading Scripture. I must be misreading Scripture. Because John was absolutely confident of this. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And I think that this is, this is something that every writer of Scripture, inspired writer of Scripture, wholeheartedly understood. Wholeheartedly understood. Whoever wrote any book of the Bible believes fully that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, right? Even the, 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 when it was originally written, this would have been understood. So what I want to do then is, I, my task is to look at the Old Testament a little bit more closely and carefully to determine, maybe I've missed something in some of these segments of Scripture, 
Maybe, maybe I'm misunderstanding something, and maybe if I can look at this with, with a different lens and read it the way Scripture would be intending me to read it, then maybe what I'll realize is that what at first reading appeared to be an arbitrary and angry God, like angry in a bad way, maybe there's actually light here, and I can see that God is light. So our, our task then would be to look at the Old Testament with that framework in mind. Can we see in the Old Testament how God is light in these moments? Okay, that's what we want to look at, right? That's what we're going to go for. Now, we can't read the entire Old Testament this morning, so what's the best way to do this? Uh, I thought that, that maybe the best way to do it would be to do so with a couple of scenes. Let's take some snapshots. And what I want to do is I want to look at scenes that are, that are sticky and difficult and present the problem in all of its core problemness to us, right? I don't, I don't want one where we can, like, we can find a way around the problem and be like, oh, well, historically speaking, this is actually what's going on. No, 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 no. Let's face it head on. Let's let the problem smack us in the face, and let's figure out how God is light, even there in some of these wild scenes. So I want to look at four scenes, all right? And we're going to do two scenes are going to be judgment, and two scenes are going to be mercy. See, I did that with the fingers there. That was... Anyway, so two and two, all right? So, so let's, what we're going to do is we're going to read them first, right? So we're going to read two scenes of judgment, and then we're going we're gonna to pause, and I've got six things to say about those scenes, and then we're going to read two scenes of mercy, and I've got three things to say about those scenes. What time am I supposed to be done? I see the clock. That's good. That's going to be really important for me to know. Because <laughs> if I don't, I don't even remember. I started at 1.30. No. Honestly, I have to know, because otherwise I could talk forever. 2.30? No, that's way too much time. You've, you don't want to give me that much time. 2.15. Okay, good. Thank you. All right. I need to know that kind of thing. Trust me. It's good that I know that up front. Okay, let's turn to Second Kings chapter 1. Let's turn to Second Kings chapter 1. Now, I don't want to read the entire chapter, but let's give you a little background, and then we're going to pick it up word for word in verse 9. Now, okay, Ahab is dead. Ahab, for those of you who read your Bibles, realize that he is about as bad as a king can get in the nation of Israel, right? He is openly worshiping Baal. He married Jezebel. What a disaster Ahab's rule is, right? So Ahab is now dead, and after his death, his son, Ahaz, Ahaziah takes the throne. And Ahaziah, he falls. We're told in verse 2, he falls through the lattice in his upper chamber. And now he wants to know, he needs a prognosis. What's going to happen to me? How is this going to pan out? And so he takes a couple of his servants and he says, here, I need you to go find out how this is going to pan out for me. And so he sends them to a prophet of Baal. So he sends him to a prophet of Baal. So his, his guys trot off to consult the prophet of Baal, not Yahweh, the God of the universe, but a prophet, a pagan, a pagan priest. So they're trotting off to the pagan priest, and along the way, as they're headed, the God didn't like this. And so God told Elisha, the Tishbite, what was going on. Elijah, I'm going to be careful here. Elijah, the Tishbite, what was going on? And he basically tells him to intercept them. So Elijah intercepts the messengers. And he says to them, he asks them what's going on. They tell him what's going on. He says, you know what? You go back to him and you tell him, is there no God in Israel? Is that why you've gone to a prophet of Baal? You are not getting up. And he pronounces judgment to him. And so then the guys are like, okay, well, I guess we'll just head back. I don't know who kind of servants these guys are. So, so they just head back to Ahaziah. And he says, and he says, hey, we found this other guy. And this is what he said. And he asks, who was this guy? Who was this character who told you this? Well, he was a hairy guy with a leather belt. And he's like, it was Elijah the Tishbite is who it was. And then we pick it up in verse 9. Pick it up in verse 9 there in first, 2 Kings chapter 1. Then the king sent to him, to Elijah the Tishbite, 
A captain of 50 men with his 50, he went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. And you thought that picture in the logo for the conference? you know, with the fire coming out of the cloud, you thought that was just going to be like artistic, right? Depicting the scene that we've just read right here. Let's keep going. Again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered him, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. O man of God, please let my life and the life of these, your 50 servants, I said that wrong, of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baal-zebub, the God of Ekron, is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died, according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Okay. That's where we're going to pause that scene. That's scene one. Now, we're not going to comment on that yet. We are going to flip over to chapter two. All right, second Kings still. So if, if that's a befuddling scene, wait till we get to this one, right? Let's go to, let's go to second Kings chapter two. Now, we're going to skip along to uh, verses 23 through 25. Now, we're not, no longer seeing Elijah. Now, we're looking at Elisha, who has taken Elijah's spot. And what... Second Kings shows us in the beginning is point by point, Elisha is assuming the role that Elijah had formerly served. And here we are in verse 23 of chapter two, and we read there. He, this is Elisha, went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him saying, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. And he turned around. And when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there, he returned to Samaria. Well, I don't know where anybody got the idea from the Old Testament that God could be angry, right? <laughs> we can see where someone would get that idea, right? But, but we want to approach these texts and say, well, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So, so what's going on? What can we understand? Six things that I want us to understand about these scenes that we've just seen of judgment. One thing to realize is this, uh, before we even get into the particulars of it, if we're looking to understand that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, and we're reading the Old Testament, the first thing we have to do is we have to sort of break off the way that we typically read stuff, all right? We, as, as 21st century Americans, tend to read stories like this as hero stories. We tend to read these things as hero stories. And, and that's often what leads us astray. 
we read this as a story about a hero who goes and conquers, and then we sort of frame the whole thing in that way, right? And, and, and that's a way of reading, that's a way, good way of reading lots of stuff that our culture writes. But that's not how the story was written. Do you know who the hero of the story is? God. God is the hero of the story. When you're reading the Old Testament, one of the best ways to correct, the cultural correction when you're reading the Old Testament is to read these stories as being about God, and then you're probably already on a better path. You're already on a better path than we were before. What does this story show me about God? Not Elisha and Elijah. What does it show me about God? All right, that's, gonna, that's the path that's going to set us in motion. Okay, that's the first thing I wanted to mention. Now, the second thing is, if we have a problem with these stories, if we read these stories and we say, I've got a problem with these stories, this is wrong. You have a problem. I have a problem. If we say that, we have a problem with God. Ultimately, we have a problem with God. The actions taken against these soldiers, the 50, the two groups of 50, the actions taken against the young men who yelled out, go up your bald head, bald head, they are both clearly actions of God. They're actions of God. Yes, the prophets call for it, but who ultimately controlled the means that actually destroyed the, the young men and the two groups of 50? It was God, Right? Elijah didn't have his hand on a button that made lightning come out of the sky and blast him. Elisha wasn't holding a big long chain that he let go and then he sicked a, a she-bear on them. He called a curse. Who controlled the bear? It wasn't Elisha. Elisha doesn't have a pet bear. Read 2 Kings as much as you want. He doesn't have a pet bear. It, the Lord controlled the bear. The Lord controlled the fire. And so we have to understand that it is God who has done the things that we see done in these scenes, all right? So we are facing it head on. That's what I mean. I wanted, I wanted stories that show us head on the, the problem that we have when we read the Old Testament, right? So, okay, I haven't solved the problem yet. I'm just sort of showing the problem's problematic, right? Well, here's where we start to understand a little bit about what's going on. Uh, point three is this, or observation three, Elijah and Elisha. You'll have to take my word for, for it on this. I can, if you want to talk later, we can kind of show you how this is laid out in First and Second Kings. But Elijah and Elisha function as spokespeople for the Lord. They are spokespeople for the Lord. They bear the word of the Lord and his authority. When they bring a word from the Lord, it is authoritative and binding, right? And so when the king sends soldiers to Elijah, he is not looking to Elijah for guidance. He's not saying, oh, Elijah, will you tell me what's going to happen? What he is looking to do is control the will of God. That's what he wants to do. He doesn't like what Elijah said to him, and he needs to stop that guy because he wants to stop the word of the Lord because he doesn't like what the word of the Lord is in his life. He wants to shush it. He want, Elijah has declared it to him, and so he responds with rebellion against it. I've got to stop that. That is not what I want. And I'm going to control the prophet, the spokesperson of the Lord, because that's the only way I can get to the Lord is to control this guy. And so that's what he's trying to do. It happens repeatedly. It happens repeatedly in First and Second Kings, that kind of a thing. Now, who is he ultimately rebelling against? Not Elijah. Not Elijah. He's rebelling against the Lord. Now, now, when the youths curse Elisha then, right? They know who he is. They know who he is. He is Elijah's successor. 
right? Elisha is on this, he's on this journey, this path, where step by step, and you could trace this through. Again, we're not doing that today, but you could trace it through. He is taking the place of Elisha, and everybody around him sees it happen as he goes through these towns. They know who he is. He had been with Elijah for years, for a while beforehand. And, and, and these people are from Bethel, right? Now, Bethel, for those of you who have studied the Old Testament at length, might remember that Bethel is the place where Jeroboam, he was the first pagan king in the northern kingdom of Israel. He set up two worship centers to make it so nobody would go to Jerusalem and worship Yahweh. And one of them was in Dan, and one of them was in Bethel. He set up a, a calf there for everybody to worship. Bethel is a, is a center of pagan worship, right? These young men are from Bethel where everyone is openly worshiping idols and, and pagans, uh, pagan worship, and they have set themselves up as opponents to the Lord. And they see uh, Elisha coming by, and they have opposed him. They have set themselves up in opposition to him. They're ultimately aligning themselves with Genesis 3.15 with the seed of the serpent. They have announced themselves and declared themselves seeds of the serpent, opposed to the seed of the woman who will ultimately triumph over them and bring salvation. So that's a third thing to realize. Elijah and Elisha are spokespeople for the Lord. And when we rebel against them, they're ultimately rebelling against the Lord. Okay, now, fourth observation. These scenes take place in a setting of judgment. They, they take place in a setting of judgment. That's, that's what all, if you read First and Second Kings, that's why there's, there's drought everywhere. Remember, the, the big conflict between Elijah and Ahab is over water, is over drought. Well, why is the drought happening? Because of God's judgment upon the land of Israel, right? There's a drought and foreign conflict, and all of this is God's judgment upon them, okay? Now, if you read 1 Kings, it starts out awesome as Solomon takes the throne. But after Solomon takes the throne, it just it's, it's like the whole thing is just this downhill slide. It's a slide that you got on in the water park and halfway through, you're like, I shouldn't have gone on this one because it is way too fast for me. And it is just sliding downhill straight into the pits of death, which for Israel is exile. It's just headed straight there. It's headed, they're headed. So when we understand how God's judgment was promised to come then, it rids us of some of the randomness of these stories. So what we need to do is we need to flip back for a moment. We need to flip back to Leviticus 26. Now, I realize Leviticus is one of the more confusing parts of the Bible because that's where we have so much of the sacrifice. Uh, but but what, a, what a wonderful place to be, however, to understand the scripture better. But we read Leviticus, and I want to look just a little bit of it. I don't want to look at all of it, but we're going to look. Now, in, in my ESV uh, Bible, and I flip to chapter 26, you'll see that in Leviticus 26, the heading above 26 says blessings for obedience. Now, then if you head down above verse 14, and it doesn't matter if, if you have a different version of the Bible, by the way, I'm just kind of showing that it's right there. You'll see that the heading in the ESV says punishment for disobedience. Okay, so these are the promises. He'd just given the promises for obedience, right? And now these are the promises for disobedience. Well, look at what they are, right? So for example, in verse 14, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all of all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, remember this is spoken through Moses, right? This is way long time ago, way before First and Second Kings. Then I will do this to you. What will he do? I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And, and you shall sow your seed in vain. You shall what? Sow your seed in vain. For your enemies shall eat it, right? 
And so then um, I'm going to skip down. Hold on. What I wanted to skip along to verse 20 then. What do we see in verse 20? And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase. And the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. So the drought that is on the land in First and Second Kings is not random. It's not random. The Lord has sent it upon them as judgment because they will not keep his covenant. They refuse his covenant. Let's skip along to verse 21. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins and I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your what? Children. Why does the author of 2 Kings, why is he so careful to tell us that it was kids that the she-bear ate up? Is it because he was bitter about, you know, losing a game at the youth group get-together? No. It's because that was the promised curse that would come upon them for disobeying the Lord. And he sees a fulfillment of Leviticus 26, 22 in what happened to those boys outside of Bethel. It's a fulfillment of the curse that the Lord promised. That's why it's mentioned. That's why it's mentioned. It's not random. It feels random. What on earth is that? Bald guy goes up, gets made fun of. He calls down a curse in their toes. It's funny. We can make jokes about it, right? And I'm pointing at our two bald pastors to to make jokes about it. But in reality, it's a very serious thing and it is not random. It really isn't random, okay? So I think that then when we understand the curses, the randomness sort of dissipates and we realize there's a purpose there. Okay, fifth thing to realize, and this is where we start understanding, look, there's no darkness in what the Lord is doing. There's no darkness. The fifth thing to realize, these are unrepentant rebellions against God and his rule and his way. There's no gray area here, right? These are unrepentant rebellion. These people are actively worshiping idols, The king sent his messengers to a prophet of Baal, right? In order to gain wisdom. Idol worship is not ignorance, right? A person can know about God and then pursue idol worship. So we're not talking about, oh, they didn't know. The poorer soldiers didn't know. And then they were struck by lightning. But their king who sent them there knew full well who Elisha the Tishbite was. He got a physical description of a guy with a hairy suit and a leather belt. And he's like, I know who that guy is. He knows full well who Elijah is. Everybody knew who Elijah was and the word that he was preaching, right? They knew full well who he was. And then they went to get him. And then they went to get him, right? The people in Bethel are Israelites. They're Israelites. They, 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 They were given the oracles of God. And what were they doing? Worshiping a calf, worshiping a calf for generations on end. The soldiers had ill intent toward Elijah. There's a reason when we look back into our first Kings passage there, chapter one, there's a reason that when the third one comes and Elijah is praying and the Lord says to him, go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So there was reason for Elijah to be afraid of the other hundred for the other two. Don't go with them. They had ill intent toward Elijah. They were not there to be like, oh, oh, the king. We're just, we're just trying to give you to the king. He just wants to talk. He didn't just want to talk. He wanted him dead because he didn't want the word of the Lord to live, right? There was, there was total ill intent, right? There was reason to be afraid of the first two. What about the boys? What about the kids, right? Well, first of all, the, these youngins are probably between the ages of 12 and 30. 
The word that's used in Hebrew could easily mean anything in that range. So we're not talking about my eight-year-old son just kind of going along with the guys, right? We're talking about people who knew better, who knew better, right? And the call of like, go up your bald head, there's a few things that it could mean, but Elijah had just been taken away, right? Elijah had just been taken away. So for one thing it could mean is, why don't you go die like Elijah? Go up, you bald head, disappear like Elijah, right? Or it could just mean simply, get out of here, scram, beat it, pal, go up, you bald head, get away from our town, right? Don't let us not forget, right, that they're seeking him out. Where did that confrontation take place? Not inside Bethel, it was outside. Elijah, Elisha is just passing through. They've left the gates and they've gone to seek him to abuse him. Notice too that the bear tore how many of them? 42, and what's the phrase? Of the boys. We're talking well more than 42 boys. Would you feel safe? You're just walking along and all of a sudden 50 plus 12 to 13 year old boys come out and are calling curses down on you? You wouldn't feel so good. That's not, an innocent, that's not an innocent exchange outside of Bethel. It's not an innocent exchange. We're talking about rebellion against the Lord and aggression. These people are not on the verge of repentance. They've cast off the Lord. They don't care, right? Now, you say, wait, would, would God do that? To, what if they were? Listen, you read the Old Testament, and how many times in the Old Testament do we see the Lord show mercy to miserable Cretans? It happens again and again and again. Ahab repented, and the Lord, Ahab repented, and the Lord responded favorably. Manasseh burned his own sons at an idol worship, and the Lord forgave the punk. He forgave the punk later when he repented, Right? Even Jeroboam, Jeroboam, he was the first king of the northern king of Israel. When the kingdom splits, right? The famous split with Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and then Jeroboam is there. So Jeroboam is there. Do you know what the Lord said to Jeroboam? He said, I will give you a kingship like David's. He promised a line like David's to Jeroboam. It was there. And Jeroboam spurned it and set up idol worship instead. The Lord is ridiculously merciful to those who are willing to show repentance. And so we'll see that in a couple of moments. Okay, sixth thing. I see the clock winning the battle here, but we're going to get there. God's acts of judgment in the Old Testament. I think this is so interesting. But God's acts of judgment in the Old Testament often involve proof. They show who he is. They uphold his name as holy. So he, so, he, so he visits an act of judgment. It, show, it proves who he is. It proves who uh, speaks in his name, right? Think of like Elijah when uh, he was, well, I should stick to where I am, but think of Elijah and, and the prophet, the, the, the battle with the prophets of Baal. It proves that Elijah speaks my word, right? It proves who he is, right? Or it also provides protection. His judgment often provides protection. They protect his people or his prophets, right? Proof and protection. This is clearly the case with Elijah, with the lightning fire coming down from the sky and consuming the, the, 50, the two groups of 50s, right? It's proving that Elijah is the prophet of the Lord and he bears the word of the Lord. You have ignored and spurned, Ahaziah, the, the, the word of the Lord. And you would dare come to me. This is, this is irrefutable. And, and, and to show you, when you send your soldiers to kill the prophet of the Lord, guess what's going to happen? They're gone. He will prove it. And not only that, but he will protect Elijah in doing so. 
right? He will protect Elijah in doing so. It's the same case with Elisha, right? It's proving that he is the prophet of the Lord, just like Elisha had been. And it's protecting him from these aggressive idol worshipers who would see him dead rather than have him succeed, right? So, so let's kind of sum up what we've looked at here, right? God is light. God is light. And so his judgment is light as well. And just like we can't imagine, I can't even fathom, I don't know what the experience would be like to, on, on next Tuesday when I'm going to turn online and I'm going to watch the BHSU Yellow Jackets play basketball in the national quarters. It's going to be so fun. I don't even know what it would be like to just root for that game and not be sort of agitated at the other team. My own anger and sin is going to be involved. It always is every time, okay? I don't even know what that's like, right? So I don't know what it's like for God to to rain fire out of heaven and consume 100 men or send a bear out of the woods and consume 42 boys and do so without like a sinful anger, like, yeah, get them, <laughs> right? Because in me, in my heart, that's what I feel like God is doing. But that's not, that would, that's the sin in my heart that wants to do it like that, right? That's the sin in my heart that wants to do it. God is light, and him is no dar- darkness at all. And so when he does that, he's not doing it out of some sort of like, ha, that would feel better now. And now he storms off and he does something merciful. He's consistent. His mercy is, is there the whole time, right? So God is light. His judgment is light as well. He uses his judgment to, to prove who he is and uphold him's name as holy and to protect his people. So, so no one who falls under God's judgment has been judged unfairly. No one has been judged unfairly. As a matter of fact, none of them desired to submit to Yahweh and his word, right? They, they, they were all to the bitter end, right? That doing this until the end, okay? And what we're going to see coming up in our other sessions is this is completely consistent with God as shown in the New Testament as well, but I'll let Kyle deal with that later. So, so let's look at two more scenes. There, tag. <laughs> let's look at two more scenes. These are going to be shorter. I won't talk as much on these because these ones aren't as confounding, but I want us to remember and see that God is this merciful God. So let's turn, still in 2 Kings, right? We're still going to deal with Elisha, but let's look at more of these sort of random feeling things. So we're going to go to chapter four and we're going to look at verses 38 to 41. These are what we could call the strange miracles of Elisha. Okay. So in chapter four, and we're going to look at 38 to 41. And here's where we read in 38. Scene, scene three. And Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And as, he, and as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered it from his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, oh man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. He said, then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. That's scene three. Let's skip ahead to verse, uh, chapter six. We're going to see another strange miracle of Elijah. We'll read verses one through seven here. Now, the sons of the prophet said to Elisha, see the place where we dwell under your charge. It's too small for us. Let us go to Jordan and each of us get there a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, go. Then one of them said, be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe fell into the water 
And he cried out, the axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Okay, more strange scenes of the Old Testament. What's going on here? Three observations. One, each of these miracles you'll see came with some sort of outward sign or cue. Really, you could think of them as things to remember them by. Was there magic in the flower? No. Was there magic? It was a magic stick that Elisha threw in the water? No. It's an outward sign. It helps you remember what happened there, right? There's nothing magic about the flower or the stick. In a sense, you could think of this as helping prevent spiritual amnesia, right? Or, and, and really, you know, that's, it just helps people remember and, and stick with, right? That's probably the most likely reason why, right? So that we can see that, look, this happened. I put the stick in there, and then that happened. Rather than like, oh, and then it floated. I guess maybe you didn't actually do anything, right? So he made an action, and then something happened. So it's very clear that the one thing initiated the other. But there's nothing magic in it, right? The idea is the Lord worked, right? The Lord worked in that. So that's the first thing to realize. It's just an outward kind of cue. The second thing, and this is more important for us to realize, these scenes take place in a context of judgment, right? God is judging Israel as a whole. Remember what we read in Leviticus 26 earlier. The drought is not random, and there's not randomly mentioned here that this was a time of drought, right? Because God's judgment is on Israel. So that's where it's coming from, right? So, so we realize that. Now, I'm not going to go back and look at the verses again because we looked at them earlier, but remember, that, that's what's going on. God is judging Israel here. And so then the third thing that I want to mention is really important. These miracles, these miracles, these two miracles, they're so small. They're so small. One guy loses an axe head. A few people are eating dinner, and it's poisonous. And, and, and he helps them. They're so tiny, right? And so what is this? Well, these miracles are done to benefit the faithful. They're done to benefit the faithful. They're acts of compassion and kindness showed to God's people in the midst of an overall time of judgment. Well, what is mercy? You know, we're judgment and mercy. What is mercy? Well, simply, it's, it's an action taken to benefit those who are in distress. That's, that's the simplest way to describe it, I think. I didn't even look it up. It was just like, kind of, you know, pause for a second. Well, what is it? Well, that's what it is. It's an action taken to, to benefit those who are in distress. These folks in these stories were faithful. Notice in chapter four, they're described as the sons of the prophets. The sons of the prophets were eating. And, and then later, it's the sons of the prophets who were, were building a place to live. So this, these were the faithful who are still worshiping Yahweh properly. And note that the faithful, were, even though they're faithful, they're still living amidst the strain of the general judgment, right? The, the, the sons of the prophets were eating the soup, but they're, they're poor and, and they're hungry, right? So they're still under this, the, the drought applied to everyone. It wasn't, in this case, like the plagues that came on Egypt, where all the Israelites in the land of Goshen are just sitting there being like, whew, glad we're fine here, right? Locusts aren't so bad here, not so many frogs here. That's not what's going on. The, the judgment is on the whole land, and it's affecting the sons of the prophets as well. It's affecting the sons of the prophets as well. So the pot of stew couldn't be wasted because there wasn't any more where that came from, right? Now, it may have been actual deadly. There's death in the pot. It may have been like you take a sip of it, it's deadly, but it seems like they probably ate some of it and then realized it, right? It may have simply been ruined, right? Like poisonous, if you eat too much of this. So, so whether it was deadly or whether it was ruined, the, 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 it was a crisis because you can't just waste a big old pot of soup like that. We don't have enough to dump it out and do it again, right? The ax head could not be lost. 
because it was, it was a high cost, right? We have to think of this as like, you know, we like an ax head, shoot, let's just go down to the hardware store and get another one, right? I mean, that's kind of silly. It would be better, probably closer for us to realize what happened if you borrowed someone's car and you wrecked their car. And you're like, what am I going to do? I don't have $10,000 to buy my friend a new car and that would be the righteous thing to do. What am I going to do? That's a, you, we're approaching the crisis a little better if we think of it in those terms, right? The ax head could not be lost. He couldn't lose it. So these were done then, the miracles were done out of compassion to fulfill genuine needs. This wasn't a show. This wasn't a show. It was done in front of the people who were there and that was it. So it wasn't like Elisha did it and then everybody knew how amazing Elisha was. That wasn't what happened here. There were particular people in particular situations and dire needs of help and they were were shown it, right? Now, Okay, we're not going to turn there, but, but I think you maybe remember that when Elijah was at Mount Horeb at one point, God promised, this is in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18, God promised that to, to Elijah that he would preserve a remnant. He said, I will preserve a remnant, okay? And the Lord, this comes from Jim Hamilton. I'm going to quote him on this because I love this. The Lord preserves his remnant, First and Second Kings. The Lord preserves his remnant. 7,000 who have not bowed to Baal. That's what he had said in First Kings 19. And the means of his preservation is in part the ministry of the prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Part of the way the Lord is preserving his remnant is not spoiling the soup, saving the soup. It's making the ax head float. He's doing this for his people. He will preserve them. He will preserve them. Now, we also want, fourth, a bonus. I said those are the three things. The bonus here, if you study this more in depth, is awesome. You know, these miracles are a part of what sets Elisha as a foreshadow to Christ. And if we understand that this is what the man of God does, then we understand and we are prepared to recognize Jesus when he comes. A man who comes and does acts of compassion for those who are in need, for those who are in need. So, so we can see that later, but we don't have time for that right now. So let's sum up kind of what we've established here. These miracles show God's merciful care for his people, even amidst his judgment. Even amidst his judgment, he cares for his people. He will preserve his people. Now you can read through 2 Kings and, and you can see these moments with Elisha. They feel random. You can do it on your own. There are other ones that you can do this. And what you realize, the core idea behind so many of these random feeling miracles is you know, like the raising of the Shunammite woman's son, the multiplying of the bread. It's the same thing. It's the same thing that's going on. He's preserving his people. He's caring for his people and he's preserving for himself a remnant. Now, I think a question for us to ask as I wrap up is, Okay, how do we live not in scenes one and two, not under the rightful judgment and wrath of God pouring down upon us? How do we, how do we not live in that scene, but instead live in scenes three and four? How, how, how does one not, how, we don't want to get stuck here. We don't want our loved ones to be here. But if, but, but, but if they deny Christ and don't obey his gospel, that's where they are. How do, how, do, how do you move? How do you make that movement? How can we be a part of the remnant who's saved, who receives the merciful act of compassion of God? How do, how do we move from judgment to mercy? Well, I think the answer, oddly enough, is in Leviticus 26. So let's flip back to Leviticus 26. It's in other places too. Well, we'll just turn there because we've already been there. It's really subtle, but it's there. It's all over the place. Let's just look, for example, in Leviticus 26, and we're going to look to verse Okay, so after the, right after the, um, 
the, the beasts bereaving you of your, your children, right? Destroy your livestock, make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. Right after that, verse 23 says this, right? So that puts us right in the, the living context of what happens. So if the people of Bethel are like, oh no, we've lost 42 of our children. And verse 23 says this, and if by this discipline, right? This discipline, the discipline of scenes one and two, if by this discipline, you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me. What does that mean? What does that mean? The discipline, the judgment was given and the the intention, the function of the judgment was what? That you would turn to me. That you would turn to me. We can't miss, the word turn is so huge. Do you know that the, the, the Old Testament word, do you know what the Old Testament word for repentance ultimately is? Turn. I mean, it's not literal. Those of you who know the Hebrew better can, can, can talk about it exactly. But it's turning. It's an image of turning. It's an image of turning. The very idea of repentance is an image of turn. If you will not, if you're not turned to me. So the function of the judgment is to, to turn. Turn is the key phrase here, right? So, so each dramatic act of final judgment, the dramatic act, right? And so we see in scene one, the dramatic act, fire from the sky. The she-bear coming from the woods. An unbeliever's death, right? Each act of final judgment was preceded by a great number of smaller acts of judgment. It was preceded by smaller acts of judgment. They lived in a time of drought. The Lord was sending the very judgment to tell them, no, this is not the way. This is not the way. And they ignored, they didn't turn. They were headed right into the judgment And they just kept heading right into the judgment. And the Lord would say, no, 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 no. Turn this way, this way toward my mercy, right? So so each of those smaller acts had a function, a purpose, right? And the function and purpose was to spur repentance, to open an opportunity for God to display his mercy. And Kyle's going to talk a whole bunch more about repentance. And so I'm going to say, tag, you're it, when it comes to the idea of repentance here, right? But, But repentance is not invented. In the New Testament, Jesus didn't invent repentance. John the Baptist didn't invent repentance. Yahweh invented repentance, right? And Yahweh turns our heart toward him in repentance. So so our Old Testament God then, kind of recap, right? Is God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And so when we see these scenes, they befuddle at first, but but we realize, no, no, this is God being righteous and, and visiting judgment upon unrighteous deeds, right? Upon unrighteous deeds and unrighteous rebellion against him. He is holy and good. And even when he is blasting fire from the sky that eats up a hundred soldiers, he's not doing so in darkness, right? He's not doing so with darkness. He is light. So uh, just kind of one quote from, again, I went from Jim Hamilton and then I want to pray. Just, I like this. He said this, he said, justice, he was talking about the Old Testament. He said, justice is not God's final word. Justice is not God's final word, however, and it does not appear to be his ultimate purpose. But justice does provide a backdrop for the display of mercy. Without justice, mercy has no meaning, has no meaning. And so when we look at God doing these things and we say, does that mean that God's truest heart is judgment? Well, God's truest heart is holiness and righteousness. And a holy and righteous God doesn't allow that to continue. I mean, do you want to be in fully consummated glory with the Lord Jesus and have people sinning 
and taking advantage of one another? No. We we don't want that for a second, right? We don't want that for a second. And the Lord doesn't want that for a second either. That's not kindness. That's not mercy. And so the, it's not, it's con- his judgment is consistent with his mercy. And his mercy is what he delights to pour out upon us as we repent and come to him. So let's pray and then enjoy our uh, next sessions. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you are, that you are consistent, that you are consistent throughout what we understand of you in scripture, that we can, uh, we can read about you in the Old Testament and we can read about you in the New Testament and you are the same. You have been the same yesterday and today and forever. You will be the same. We can trust in that. And so when we read our Old Testament and we get a little befuddled at times, help us to trust in what John has articulated in 1 John 1.5. Help us to trust that you are light and that when we see darkness in you, we know that the problem is in our eyes, not in the object which we see. You are the object, Lord. You are light. Help us to trust in that light despite whatever else we might wonder. Help us to trust in you and depend on you and delight in you. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.